Thank you very much. Today, I'm here with Matt Seltzer. He is the Senior Vice President at Intuify and the founder at S2. He's worked with clients such as YouTube, Joby, and CBS for market research, and he is the author of the book, The Creative Catalyst. Matt, how are you doing? Excellent. How are you doing? Doing all right. It's it's uh, first thing in the morning for me, so I, I hope I'm glad it's not video as well because I might need to take a sip of coffee. Uh, I got my red or my monster with me, so I understand. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, you may need the energy just having come from the gym. Cool. So the the first question I have here is, I'd love to get some of the practical insights from you on on the how and why of market research. Yeah. What are some of the typical issues that come up which suggest that market research hasn't been done in the first place? So if, if people are looking for red flags. Yeah, there's a few big red flags that I've seen in my career. I mean, the first is very literally when a campaign doesn't work or put even more impactfully when a campaign does the opposite of what it wants to do. I'll, I'll give you a real good example. This was going back about 15 years ago. It was right after Dave Thomas passed away. Dave Thomas was the founder of Wendy's. And Wendy's, the company, rolled out a new campaign where people were just walking around wearing Wendy's hair, her iconic red hair, like a hat. It had a good intention. It had this feel of, I'm thinking Arby's. But what it ended up coming across, and the I saw one meme that really made the most sense of it. It said, Dave Thomas passed away. Now we can make fun of his daughter. And mm. if you're Wendy's, that's not what you're going for, obviously. And it hurt them. And they bounced back. They actually just ditched the campaign, started a new one. But a lot of money went into that campaign, a lot of effort. And the number one thing I took from that campaign is someone guessed. Someone came up with an idea and said, let's run with it. And very literally, when you are just come up with an idea, you run with it, you don't do any testing, you don't do any research on it. That's the equivalent of throwing spaghetti at the wall, you know, to see what sticks. And that was a campaign where someone threw some spaghetti at the wall, meaning someone had an idea, they went and took it to market, and it backfired. It didn't even, it's not even that it didn't perform, it negatively performed for them. And if you're in marketing, that's, that's a terrible position to be in. And research literally negates those situations. I mean, that's, that's the purpose of research. There's many other examples. The other way to look at it is just, we put X number of dollars into marketing and we didn't get X in return. We, we lost money or maybe we could have maximized our dollars better. That means that some of your working, marketing is working, some of it isn't, or maybe all of it's not. And you won't know that unless you're running research to develop the strategy initially and then running it again to determine what worked and why. Are there any specific issues that might come up in regards to the product itself? So for example, I was, I was talking to a product founder just, just the other day and they had explained that they were finding really difficult to get traction with some of the products they had developed. But one of them was doing really well, and they couldn't work out why the other one wasn't doing well. Well, God, there's a lot to unpack there because, yes, the answer is always in the research. You know, when you say product, you know, it's 2023. When I hear product, half the time I'm thinking tech. And that's just because that's what's being developed these days. You know, if I was two people come up with products, one of them's tech. There's a reason that the fastest growing segment of market research right now is UX research. That's because so many tech companies are realizing that one product worked, one, one product doesn't, or relevant scenario to that. How do we figure that out? Well, the answer is UX research. And it's not always UX research. That just makes so much sense for tech. But research in general... But okay, so let's say you built an app and it works, 
Let, let's use your the scenario. The app works perfect. You didn't do any research. You just nailed it out of the park. And you say, you know what? We should make a business version of this app. Let's call it a B2C app. And now we're going to make a B2B version. And so you make a few cosmetic changes. You make a few UX changes and you roll it out. And now it bombs. Why? And we could guess, but you know what's better than guessing? Let's go ask 100 actual users of this app to test it and not just test it, but let's record the feedback. Let's have a moderator, a focus group moderator, an in-depth interview moderator, a qualitative moderator, ask questions throughout. What are you trying to accomplish with the app right now? Where are you getting held up? And the answers to all those questions are literally a roadmap to improve the app. That's a real case scenario that I'm involved in every single day because We've all been there. Just because you have a great idea doesn't mean that idea is ready for market. And again, you can guess and you might even work with your team members and you can figure it out what how to make it better. But I'll give you a better answer. What if you went out and asked 100 or 500 real customers to answer those questions for you? The feedback you're going to get is raw. It's real. And the best part is if 30% of the audience says the exact same thing over and over, that's a pain point that you can identify and solve. And someone told me once the solution to every problem is a business. That's what we're doing here is we're identifying problems and solutions through research. When it comes to managing the the product mix, and I, and I think we're, we're speaking about products here in the same way, mainly about tech products. When it comes to managing a, a mix of different services and products, what are some of the signs that market research may not have been done properly here? So I could imagine that there's an element of, you know, being able to maximize profit by having the right products in place for the right groups. But what has been your experience here? What are you seeing? Well, I'll give you a, I probably should just give one answer to all your questions. And I think I've given two or three <laughs> and that's, a, that's, I ramble. The first is that there are just things wrong with the app or the tech or the whatever. I'll give you a good example. I, I was just on a golf app the other day and I'm not going to name names. It's a popular one though. And they rolled out they have one of those auto scroll buttons where you can scroll all the way to the bottom or the top. It sits on the bottom right. Same thing they have on the bottom right book tee times on the course. Well, both of those ideas make sense. What happened though is I can't book a tee time because the auto scroll button is on top of the book a tee time button. And that's, uh, we've all been in those situations where two people had a great idea, they rolled them out, and we never saw how they conflicted. Research would have solved that. But the other side to the coin, and this maybe answers your question better, research is never really done. I'm uh, completed. I mean, I mentioned tech and web, web UX. That's just an ongoing process, just like A-B testing is an ongoing process. It's not a matter of, okay, we tested it, we maximized it, we're done. It's great. Let's keep testing and keep improving. Something like if that golf app had a continuous cycle of research, meaning on a quarterly basis, they run usability testing, that's going to get identified and solved. The fact that it hasn't tells me they're not doing ongoing research. But let's say they fix it. That doesn't mean stop doing research. It means keep doing research because you might find better ways to improve your website or your app. Or let's go offline here. If you're a manufacturer of cheeseburgers and you, you make and sell the best cheeseburger ever and two things happen. Well, let's say one day you start losing market share. Can't figure out why. Second thing that happens is you real, you find out, or maybe you don't find out, that there is a rising trend in barbecue sauce on burgers. And you don't sell burger, barbecue sauce. Well, all you're going to know is we're losing market share. I don't know why. Research might identify, oh, we don't have barbecue sauce. That's the trend right now. We need to catch up. But you know what's better than figuring that out after the fact 
is constantly doing research. So six months before you see that barbecue sauce craze hit your numbers, you already saw it coming and rolled out barbecue sauce. That's a real case scenario. Going back to the point of UX, uh, there's a story, though, that, that sticks with me. It's one of my favorite UX stories. So going back to the 1950s, when Disneyland was first opening, before they officially opened the doors, they did a series of soft test launches on weekends. So they were open for the weekend, then they closed all week and evaluated how it went. And after the very first weekend, if, if for anyone who's been to Disneyland, they've got these beautiful sidewalks that are lined with flowers everywhere. And after the first weekend, several of those flowers had been trampled on. People didn't follow the sidewalks. They walked right through the flowers. And so the gardening team went right to work fixing the flowers. They, you know, that's, and this is just going to be their job. Every Monday, they're going to fix the flowers. And according to legend, Walt Disney came up to them and he says, what are you guys doing? You, you shouldn't be replacing the flowers. You got to put concrete here. The people are showing us where they want to walk. It's up to us to listen. And I have thought about that from the lens of websites, from the lens of product development, from the lens of research for my entire career, ever since I heard that story, because that's literally what we're doing. If someone walks through my flowers, or let's think about a website, if someone keeps clicking an image because they think it's a hyperlink, it's not my job to say, no, that's, that's not a hyperlink. It's my job to program the hyperlink. And actually, officially, it's my job to tell a web development team, you need a hyperlink here because everyone is assuming they want a link here. Well, that's ongoing research, that's product development, and it's a never-ending cycle. Just like, again, I'll go back, just like A-B testing. It's one of my favorite stories. I think heard of it the other day as well in terms of apparently they, they implement that now as a practice as well and that they leave the original version of the park open and let without permanent paving and then they see where people walk and then they pave it because of that it's experience. It's a real thing. I'll flip the script there. So so I live in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is a desert, and we don't have a lot of water. So we'll, we'll open the conversation there. We also have a lot of golf courses. In fact, we have more golf courses. This is the second time I brought up golf in this conversation. But I believe we have more golf courses than any other city in the United States per capita. Don't quote me on that. If anyone says I'm wrong, then you're, you're probably right <laughs> on that. But so golf courses means a lot of grass. Grass means a lot of water, and we don't have a lot of water. So what a lot of golf courses are using now is they've installed GPS systems on all of their golf carts. And they can tell after one year of everyone playing, where is their grass that no one is driving on? Meaning no one hit their ball into this grass. No one's driving on it. Should it just be replaced with desert landscape? And thousands of acres of grass has been eliminated here in Las Vegas on golf courses because it simply wasn't needed. And now You've got the same golf experience because the places that do need grass still have it. Your your footprint is uh, your ecological footprint is noticeably smaller. You're saving water, and all of that's coming from the exact same data as flowers being trampled on. It's that we're looking where were golf carts going. We're using GPS data, and arguably flowers being trampled on is GPS data in its rawest form. But it's not that we have data. It's okay. What what conclusions can we draw from this data that could arguably make us more money at the end and getting rid of grass when you work in an industry where you have to pay for water all the time getting rid of grass saves you money which makes you money at the end of the year same thing with if you can get everyone to rides at disneyland faster that increases your efficiency if you can put a hyperlink on an image because that's what everyone assumes it is they assume it's a hyperlink and your goal is to get them to the next web page anyways all of that is the exact same conversation and again i'll go back to the beginning of this conversation you can guess or we can use data. 
And if the data isn't there, you can watch people, you can conduct research. If the data is there, you can just go through your existing data, but the answers are there if you're willing to take the time. I see what you mean. And, and it's one of my favorite things to, uh, to pick on marketers to say that our, our least favorite tactic is the best, which is just asking customers because it seems uh, that's not always the most popular solution. It, it rarely is. And it's so good. 100%. So we've got market research in order to solve problems. What is the role of yearly market research or, or you know, quarterly market research for the purposes of planning? So a lot of people think of research as a one-time thing. In fact, that's the majority of the projects we work on. And what do you get when you do one time? Well, you get a snapshot in time. You get to see how do my customers think, feel, what are they interested in now? So a lot of things can come from that. KPIs can come from that. You could say, okay, right away on a one to 10 scale, what's our brand awareness? And we might call this net promoter score. We could, there's a lot of ways to call it. And let's call it a five, five out of 10. Well, then you're going to spend the next year doing marketing. And the question always comes up in marketing, did it work? Meaning we invested X dollars, did we get at least X back? Well, you're not going to know that unless you run the study again. So now you're doing, it's not just benchmarking, which is a one-time. Now it's, it's constant KPI measurement. Now you're doing your ongoing research. But we're only thinking that as a measurement tool. What if you then did it quarterly? What if you had a survey in the field always? Literally every single moment you're collecting, you collect 100 responses a day worldwide, and you do that every single day. So it's 365,000 responses. You have a constant flow of data. Well, now you're not just tracking for the sake of tracking, meaning did it work? That's, that's important, but you're not worried about that. You're instead worried about what can I learn constantly? You ever sat down and it's, it's Q2 and revenue looks okay. Maybe Q3 has bad projections. You're not sure why. And, you sit, and you're not sure why. Let's unpackage that. Well, what if there was a constant stream of perception data, behavioral data, audience data coming in that you could just tap into and explore and answer that why before Q3 starts? And you can make proactive decisions. That's the value in doing ongoing research as opposed to this snapshot research. The more granular go with you go with it, Without question, the more value you see. But I'll, I'll concede there's, there's a cost associated with that. There's an effort factor that's associated with that. The value is always there. I've done more research projects in my career than I can count. I have yet to encounter a research project that didn't pay for its weight after the fact. But it's hard to bite off on that. I mean, I think a Porsche is probably worth the money that it costs. That doesn't mean I have the money to buy a Porsche. So I get both sides of that conversation. But I can tell you definitively, ongoing research produces ongoing better results without question. Yeah, that's a that's a great analogy there. If you have those 100 points of data coming in constantly, it would be helpful to see how the brand is evolving and how perceptions are changing. And like you said, you'll be able to work out what's, what's working, what's not. Yep. When you engage with a, a prospective client, for example, and they say, hey, my marketing's not working. I don't know what to do. How do you go about diagnosing the market research problem? So there's a few, again, a few ways to answer that. And I'll just go through the process. If someone just tells me their marketing is not working, working, we almost are going to always going to start with just a clean slate. So the same thing that if a brand new client or a startup came to us that had no marketing, we'd almost treat it like that. However, if there were things that we wanted to test, meaning we're, we're running outdoor, we know we should be doing outdoor, but for some reason our outdoor doesn't perform, then we might go a little deeper into that. Maybe it's message taste testing, or maybe it's programmatic outdoor. There's, there's other things that we could dive into. But for the most part, we'll treat it with a clean slate. After that, 
we're going to want to develop a methodology that can discern journey mapping because we're really coming in with a clean slate. So let's assume we have customers. We have a rough idea of who those customers are rough. And that's as much as we know. Well, from this point forward, we're going to talk to, we're going to go conduct research. Maybe it's a survey, maybe it's a focus group. And I'll explain the difference in a sec of why you would use one versus the other. And we're going to go figure out what does that in that audience's discovery period look like? Meaning how do they discover new brands or new problems that they have? And then we're going to dive deeper into, okay, they've discovered a brand. How do they dip their toes in engagement? How do they dive fully into engagement? And eventually, how do we get them to try? And we'll also probably diagnose just because someone tries doesn't mean they'll stay a customer. So we'll also put some sort of customer experience plan together, et cetera, diagnosis plan. Because we really want to map out an entire journey of someone who has never heard of our brand all the way to that person now is in love with our brand. What does that journey look like? So I mentioned methodology. Now we've got to decide, are we going to use quantitative methodologies or qualitative methodologies? For those who don't remember from college, the difference is quantitative is going to be very data focused. Uh, this might be surveys. It might be web data. It's, it's numbers, quantities. Qualitative is where we're going to sit down and talk to people. Maybe it's interviews with people. Maybe it's focus groups. Maybe it's reading Yelp reviews. And I've done that before. But it's unstructured data, but it still in mass has weight to it. Now, why would you use one versus the other? First off, I'm a quant guy by nature, so I'm almost always going to opt for quant because I like numbers. And the reason I like numbers is if someone, if numbers definitively tell me that 75% of my audience likes this thing, that's hardcore. I can go with that. I can hang my hat on it. It's good. To test numbers, you need to have specific things you want to test. Maybe you don't have those things. Maybe you don't even know what the journey looks like. Maybe you don't know what kind of media habits or media at all the audience uses. Maybe you have no clue where they are or who they are or what they care about. Then you may want to do something more exploratory, like qualitative. Qualitative, picture a focus group or a one-on-one -on -one interview with audience members. You can actually ask the question, well, what do you want? And they'll answer it. They'll answer it unstructured and they'll answer it well. And that's big. The other time you might want to use qualitative is when you just don't have a large audience. Maybe you're in the B2B space and globally you have 100,000 potential customers, which is a pretty small audience globally. But again, maybe you're selling a million dollar product, so you only need to sell a few of those. You're not going to be able to survey a viable number of that audience to get the data, but you could definitely talk to 15 of those people and get some real insights. So that's another reason why you might opt for qualitative. Again, there's a few different reasons you would go back and forth. There's also what we call the grand, one of the granddaddies of research is where we'll do the perfect study where we open with a qualitative phase because we don't know what we don't know, have enough conversations that we learn what we should be testing, and then go into a quantitative phase where we use numbers to test the ideas that came up in our qualitative phase. And so all of that, all of that research is designed to pinpoint what matters to the audience what language do they care about? What factors do they care about? Pain points? How do they spend their time from a media standpoint? What problems are they trying to solve in their life? Not just the problems that you solve, but from a, a psychological hierarchical needs standpoint. I mean, there's a, a, a great, great concept. It's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And he basically explains that until bottom needs are met, top level needs won't be met. So that might be, if we're starving, I'm not going to care about buying new shoes, Starving is a bigger priority, and I got to be cognizant of that if I'm trying to sell nice shoes, are basic needs met? 
And so all of that we're going to map out, and then we translate it back into a language of marketing. So if I'm working with a marketing team, like a literal marketing team, like an ad agency, I want to give them something that spells out media habits, a creative brief so their talented copywriters and art directors can go create content that'll reach this audience. I mean, I, I have the skill set to do that I just from my background, but there are people who are more experienced than that and are experts. They just need direction. Separately, maybe we're working with a small business or a medium-sized startup with, you know, it's VC-backed. They need an actual marketing strategy. Well, we'll take those insights, and we're not just going to give them insights. We're going to tell them, on day one of your marketing, you need to be doing this. Day two, you need to be doing this, and really break it down. So lots of things to pull out there. So we have, we have research to solve specific problems that come up, such as Wendy's campaign, as an example, or the... Uh, allotment of grass on a golf course or mm -hmm. you know, a particular campaign has not worked or a particular product is not converting. And then we have, as I understand it, the general marketing research that you can use to drive your strategy and planning that you may, may do and, and track throughout the year, as you mentioned, with, with follow-up con uh, consistent research. Thinking of the, of the broader research for the marketing planning process, you talked about qualitative, you know, interacting with with people and quantitative collecting data. Where are you getting the questions from, or how you do you develop the questions to ask in both of these research tactics, if that's the correct word? So, I mean, this is psych social science. 101. I mean, this is deep social science is a better way to think of it. We're crafting everything with a social science thinking in mind. So that's psychologically driven. It's sociology driven. It's behavioral economically driven. One of the biggest challenges with any type of type time you ask a research question is you don't want to bias the response. Like a good example is a good question might be, what did you think of my event on a one to 10 scale? A biased question might be, how much did you love my event on a one to 10 scale? Well, I'm already going to boost my numbers by saying the word love. We, we know this. Scientifically, we know this. So it's crafting questions like that. Separately, from a qualitative standpoint, what we're really crafting when we write it, what we call a discussion guide, which is a script for the conversation we're going to have, we're writing a conversation. And I don't mean for that to be redundant. I mean for it to be okay, how do we open the conversation? How do we get someone warm enough that they want to talk to us? Which a lot of my questions, I'm actually running a study tomorrow. The first five minutes of questions are really the same five minutes you would use at a networking event just to get to know someone. Because what I'm trying to do is get someone warm. So when I ask them questions about a website, they're confident enough to have a conversation with me. Surveys are going to be the exact same thing. You might open with some basic demographics, one, because you need to capture that, but two, because I want to get someone comfortable answering survey questions before I dive into survey questions. From there, there's a term we use in my office called showing your hand. And every time we ask a question, we ask ourselves in a survey, literally in a survey, uh, have we shown our hand yet? Should we have shown our hand? A good, this is a good example. When we are doing brand testing, meaning we're, not, we're testing brand X, which isn't a real brand, it's you know the client. And we're also going to test similar factors of their competitors. Well, we can't do deep dive questions on brand X until we've asked the questions about the competitors first, because otherwise we've told the audience this is a survey about brand X. 
And now they're doing everything through the lens of Brand X, where I don't want them to do the, anything thinking about Brand X until we show our hand. Instead, I want them just thinking about the category. The last piece with that, and this kind of goes back to marketing journey mapping too, is you got to think of it very funnel driven. So at the bottom of the funnel, you are specific with what you were talking about. You've dove into the nitty gritty. That does, that's not where you start. Start with your broader questions. Work your way down the scale. And then constantly ask yourself, is this the right place for this question? Is it the right question? And am I asking people to validate what I think I know? Or am I really getting uncensored insights? The latter is what you want. Validating what you think you know, that's just you're looking for confirmation bias. If we had to bring this to a very practical example for, for say, somebody listening, they're trying to develop the questions that they would use to discover the customer journey for their purposes, their marketing planning. How would they go about creating those questions? So you mentioned thinking through broad and then going narrow down the bottom. Mm -hmm. Say it was, just say it's a, a golf app in this case. How would they come up with these questions? So what does a golf journey look like? And let's start at the top. The very beginning of a golf journey might not even involve golf. It's what days of the week are you free? And then from there, great, how do you like to spend your time? And this might be the first time you bring golf up. You also might put hiking in there. You might put racquetball. You might put a million different hobbies. Now, if there's a million, maybe you treat that as an open-ended question. In your own words, how do you like to spend your time? And we'll look for golf on the back end later. Then we might put golf into a comparative set. So we say, okay, if you could rank these activities from your favorite to least favorite. And toward the second half of the survey, now we're going to say, okay, now we'd like to ask you some questions about golf. And this may just be, how did you discover golf? How long have you been playing golf? And by the end of the survey, you can ask questions about, you know, you're 50 yards out and you're in a sand trap. What club are you using? That's the deep dive stuff. And you may not need to go that deep, but it doesn't make sense if that was my very first question. If I said, I don't even know if you play golf. And my very first question is, you're 50 yards out. What club are you using? Now we've, we've gone too far into the conversation. And it's the same thing. Business owners are really good at this. Anyone who's good at networking already knows we're just having a conversation. And so same thing. You're asking, you know, stage three conversation points. That's not how you open. Very conversational, really thinking about that. You're taking someone on a journey. The other thing to remember is as you're having a conversation and a survey is a conversation, so is a focus group, it's a journey. So again, how do you want that journey to start? Where do you want it to go? What do you want to learn from it? It's really thinking through that. Now, from building out actual survey questions, this requires a little bit of experience in writing surveys. And you could just start, you listener, could start right now programming surveys. I mean, most survey software, their basic version is free. And you can start playing with stuff. And the best way, just like anything in marketing, the best way to make something good is to go make a bad draft right now. And that's the point. You're going to fail. And that fails the wrong word, but it's not going to be up to the level you want it to be at because it was your first one. The next one will be better. The next one will be better and just keep practicing. And from there, how do you figure it out? Go test your survey. Ask some friends or colleagues or real customers to take it. Test and test and get better, which especially digital marketers, we know how to build stuff and test it. But for some reason, we think of research as this intimidating or unnecessary phase. And no, just it's the exact same process. So you mentioned building them on these on these free platforms. Could you use them as a source 
of the questions themselves or do you do you ever recommend people you know referring to question banks you can always google something like this you know 10 best survey questions for x do, what are your thoughts on these i'll give you a few answers to that so qualtrics is one of the survey software platforms we use. It is a paid platform. They have a full library and using that as a starting point is fine. Actually, I had a conversation about that today that, you know, some people in this world are writers, some people are editors. If a survey platform can give you your 15 question survey as a draft, and even if that draft, you'd give it a C, meaning you still got to get there. Well, now you get to put your editing hat on, not your writing hat. And that might work better for some people. The other thing, I've been playing a lot with it, you could just go ask ChatGPT to write a survey for you, and it doesn't do a bad job. It, I, I asked it today just because I wanted to see. I need a 10-question employee satisfaction survey. It did a fine job, and then it just wrote me text. I then had to go program it. Again, I'll give it a B-, and I'm a professional researcher, so I mean that's a, a pretty – you know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grade heavy. B- is a starting point? That's wonderful, and we're using AI to do it. I know one survey platform, and they haven't released this publicly, so I can't say their name, that integrated ChatGPT into their platform. So when you say, can you write me a 10-question survey, it'll program it, and it's ready to go. So uh, there is no wrong way to do this. I mean, even if I used AI to write copy for me, I'm still probably going to edit it. And we're having this philosophical debate in the marketing world right now. Is that cheating or is that efficiency? I'm of the efficiency mindset, especially if it gets clicks. So say we have these questions. What's the interaction between the qual and the quant in this case? Are you using the same questions on both sides or are you using the, the qual for a specific reason that's different to the quant? What are your thoughts on this? Take a website as an example. We're trying to improve the website or, or app. Let's use an app. App's a really good example for this. And you want to know what features should be in your app. Well, if I do a survey, meaning I'm saying, okay, I need you to rank the following features, right? And we've got a, a faster sales process, one tap buying, and free delivery. Let's just put those, right, as our ideas. Well, in a survey, I would write those in there, and I would say, pick your favorite, meaning I'm looking for the one that stands out. Those were my ideas that I'm testing. And well, we, we said faster checkout, one-tap pay, and free delivery. We've completely ignored now buy one, get one, because I never thought of it when I wrote the survey. And what if that matters to 90% of the audience? We have no way of finding that out in a quantitative survey like this. But a qualitative meaning it's a qualitative question or maybe it's a focus group, I'm not going to put people in a box. I'm not going to say, okay, rank these three things. I'm going to say, what features do you want? And then I'm going to sit back and listen. And what I'm waiting for is for, let's say I'm doing 10 interviews. I want at least seven of those people to say the exact same thing because it stands out. But now it's unstructured. Maybe 10 people brought up or seven people brought up the buy one, get one as another feature that we never even thought of. Separately, that's seven out of 10 people. I can't hang my hat on that statistic. It's not enough people. It's guidance, but it's not enough that I can be statistically accurate. So there's pluses and minuses to both of those because one of them is very exploratory. I never would have come up with the nugget of idea that apparently the audience needs in this hypothetical without that qualitative phase. Separately, I never would have been able to test it or know definitively this is the idea without some sort of data methodology. Now, in most research situations, we choose one or the other, and 
you're just kind of going with the best opportunity. In the perfect world, you go through the qualitative exercise, discover what you don't know, and then you take all the features that stood out from a qualitative phase in this example and put them into a survey and go test them out systematically to see what really floats to the top. That's the perfect world where qual and quant meet. Like, again, uh, again, I'm saying you, you can't always afford both of those or timing wise you don't you can't do all of that so you have to choose a methodology and those right there are the limitations and benefits of each interesting got it yeah that makes that makes sense where you have the the qual first to explore and then you i guess you get even the options that you would put into a into a survey like you mentioned you you wouldn't have heard the buy one get one free unless you had a discussion with oh yeah active client first why focus groups are not just interviews is it a is it a cost thing or is there a difference to it actually it's funny so everything's changed because of covid so it it used to be a cost thing predominantly because if i was going to have let's say i've got 20 people that i need to interview and i've got to pay all of them well doing two focus groups of 10 and i got to pay for a facility two focus groups of 10 is much more cost effective than one-on-one interviews with 20 people it's going to take me days to get through that now it's 2023. This really started happening. I noticed in 2020, we started doing interviews one-on-one on Zoom or other platforms. Well, now two things have happened. One, time a person's time, the cost of their time goes down because they don't have travel time. They don't have to go somewhere. They don't even have to dress up. And I can get through several interviews in two, three days all on a computer. And the recording features are there, which they weren't there previously. You know, we, we used to literally set up recorders when we do interviews. I've literally flown out to meeting uh, meeting rooms in other cities to conduct one-on-one interviews. Now we're doing them on Zoom. The cost went tremendously down. Separate from that, managing a, a focus group, meaning you need to manage personalities and get people bouncing ideas off each other, which is incredibly valuable. That's the other piece with the focus groups come in, where if I could hear person X and person Y bounce ideas, that's good for research. But managing that in virtual is tricky. Managing personalities, multiple personalities virtually is difficult compared to doing it in person. So one-on-one interviews, IDIs, in-depth interviews, IDI, those have actually really picked up steam over the last three years because of the prevalence of digital technology to to make this easier. The whole world's changing. Both have their benefits. There's another concept that's right in the middle. It's called a dyad, where maybe I have a video interview with two people. And again, what I'm trying to do is I want to hear two people bounce ideas off each other, especially if they're from the same industry or background. I want to get them thinking out loud for me. There's reason you would want to do that. And I can manage two people. You, any listener, could manage two people in a conversation to get them to have a conversation. But once you get up to focus group size, that's tricky to manage virtually. Mm. So just like we were saying, qual and quant have their pluses and minuses. The different ways that qual plays out have their pluses and minuses, too. There's a great concept that I love that I see more and more businesses doing now where they're creating customer advisory committees where on a quarterly basis, they just ask a group of 10 customers to come into their store or maybe they do do it on Zoom and they just want to hear what's going on in the world. And you do this quarterly, maybe you rotate out, meaning people can do up to three sessions in a year or a lifetime, but you do three sessions in a year, you're constantly recruiting and rotating. And what would that give you as a business owner? It would give you visibility that you may not have. And this is completely unstructured qualitative research. That's fine. It's research that will give you insight into your audience and your business that can only benefit you. Interesting. You mentioned recruiting. 
here. It's not something I had thought too much about before, but how do you go about working out how much you would need to pay somebody to either attend a focus group or an interview, or do you try as best you can get them free <laughs> first? Oh, that's a, there's a lot of ways to unpack that. So first off, as a, a professional research firm, when we work with a lot of recruitment companies. That's a piece that we don't do in-house. We work with vendors who are experts in recruiting healthcare participants or recruiting cheeseburger customers. I mean, everyone kind of specializes in something, whatever the project is. And I'm a firm believer in relying on experts to do the expert part of the job. Mm -hmm. They always figure out a cost within this, and that's just their process. So we go off of those numbers. Now, separately, I've done a ton of focus groups and uh, in-depth interviews and even surveys where you're using a tapped-in audience, meaning you're a business, you have an email list, or maybe you have a storefront. How do we get your customers to take the survey or to participate in a focus group? And those, you don't always have to pay people. If you're in retail, a lot of people will take your product. Uh, I've seen uh, sandwich restaurants who do these advisory committees and they say you're going to get free sandwiches for a month if you participate in three quarters of this. And people will do that. Now, separately, you might get some biased responses because of that, because it's people who love your product that actually might benefit you if you're trying to reach your diehard fans. Surveys, when we do a survey, predominantly the same methodology, we're going to pay every respondent because that's the professional way to do it. I mean, that's literally how the industry functions. But if you have a tapped in audience, there's nothing stopping you from running a contest, meaning everyone who takes the survey, we're going to enter you into a drawing and you can even get away with. So most people don't want to take a longer than a five minute survey, but you could give a five minute survey and then ask, you know, would you like to take five more minutes for a second entry? And you'll get some people to take the survey. And I have found this. Let's say you're paying everyone that takes your survey five bucks to take your survey separately. And, and let's say you want a thousand people to take it. So that's $5,000 separately. You might run a contest where we're going to pick five winners from this study and they're each going to win a hundred dollar visa gift card. Well, now your cost is 500, not 5,000. And separately humans, we people interpret that chance of winning a hundred dollars as significantly more valuable than the $5 incentive payment in the other example. So, Right there is a strategy where you can save money and tap into psychological realities that humans value the chance of winning $100 higher than they do actual $5, and your cost just went down by 90%. Play around with stuff like that, and whenever possible, you'd be surprised. A lot of people are willing to do things for free. You want people to know that you're appreciative of their time. I, I knew a ton of restaurants that will give you a free drink the next time you come in if you fill out the survey. And the survey code's on the receipt. And what I think is even better is if you replace survey codes with QR codes because it starts to play into someone's life. You give their receipt. Everyone's got the phone in the hand. They scan it. And the next time they come in, they're going to get a free drink. And that's low-hanging fruit. It's theoretically brilliant. It's the same thing. I have a conversation all the time with a, a, a coworker of mine. She, she loves Kohl's. And for those who don't know, Kohl's, Kohl's is a, a retail store. And Kohl's is very famous that you get Kohl's bucks. Kohl's bucks is literal money that you can use only at Kohl's. You get it the day that you check out. So if I spend 50 bucks, I might get 10 Kohl's bucks right now. It's not good till next week. So I have to come back. But I'm literally holding a $10 bill that's only good at Kohl's, but it's a $10 bill. That's real. And from Kohl's standpoint, I've got them to come back next week. Well, free drink for taking my survey is the exact same thing. It's 
just thinking through what do people want and what do I have in my arsenal to give away, which a lot of times it's money. It's also a lot of times not money. Yeah, very smart. The idea of trying to prompt them to, to come back through the survey, so sort of a double whammy there. Coming back to the, to the process overall, so we've generated the questions. We, we've seen the role of, of you know, interviews and focus groups versus actual survey. Uh, we're going to have to speed through the actual getting out of the survey, but say you get all the results back, how would you analyze the results that come back to you? No, good, good question. So first off, it's, if it's qualitative, it's, we joke, it's very hippie in the sense that we're going to sit down and talk about what emotions we heard. And really, it's, it's like a book report. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's very much understanding and just creating understanding. It's nice that I have a team because we'll bounce ideas off each other to hear, did you hear the same thing that I heard? Did you capture something different? And we'll, we'll concise that. Separately with data, data analysis, data analysis. It's charts and graphs and it's understanding. Now, I say both of these because as a research firm, and I, this is a necessary step, you have to do a research report, meaning the big, boring, 100-page research report that no one reads. That's a step you still need to take because it organizes all of your findings. But the most important thing I found for research is to create an output after that phase that looks like the outputs that your audience and your audience being a researcher, meaning the marketing team, the operations team, the finance team, you want to create outputs that they are already using. So I mentioned copywriters and art directors at one point. They use creative briefs. That's literally part of the process, a one to two page sheet that says, this is your audience. This is what matters to them. This, needs what, this is what needs to go into the copy. Go. Researchers are better equipped than anyone to write a creative brief. And it's meaning literally it's our job to take that 100-page research report and translate it into the two-page document that we call a creative brief. Same thing if we're doing a strategy brief, meaning this is the overview that your marketing needs to take. That's a real document that a lot of strategists use. We have to then translate it into that. Personas, segmentation analyses. We do a lot of dashboarding where we're putting the actual analysis features into the hands of a user because i know no one wants to read that 100 page research report put another way i know that a 100 page research report is only interesting to researchers i need to create things that are interesting to my audience just like every marketer is required to do so it's about translating research into a language of mark for marketers which is actually the title of a white paper i published a few years ago that's the critical step that it's not just about running analysis to say we ran analysis. It's about taking what you learned and putting it into a format that the next team to use it will use. So we talked earlier about, you know, a, a, a hypothetical, hypothetical situation in which somebody was like, Hey, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Things just aren't working. Let's start with a clean slate. We go through the customer journey. We work out the questions. We look at both qual and quant. We get the data back and we need to analyze it. So in this situation where they, where they don't have the big picture, how are they translating the results into a usable form? So for example, is it, you know, they've taken all the insights that they've gathered from, from visualization of the data to be like, oh, you know, I see where the break is in the chain or, you know, and here are all the ideas of what I can do, or, or is there something else to it? Well, what we, we skipped an important step in the very, very beginning. What are you trying to solve? We need to define that. What is our research question or challenge that we are cutting, con 
conducting research specifically for the purpose of solving. That has to be the very first thing that we do in our research is define the research problem and then going all the way to answer your question. And so now we're at the tail end. Now, knowing what the problem is will dictate what kind of output we need. If the problem is we need better messaging, then the final piece might be some sort of messaging outline. If the problem is we have no clue who our audience is, then it might be a segmentation analysis and personas or journey maps. If it's we have no clue how to, we know who the audience is, we have no clue how to conduct marketing, then it's going to be strategy. It's whatever the problem was that dictates the output at the very end. And there might be multiple outputs. I've written a creative brief and a media outline from the same research. And the reason I created two different documents is because, and anyone who has worked in an ad agency will know this, a media buyer thinks very different than a, a creative content creator. Or it's not up to them to figure out what I'm trying to tell them. It's up to me to create a document that tells them. And if that means that's two different people, that means two different documents. So going all the way back to the beginning, we you would need to have had the specific issues identified before conducting the research. If, for example, the, the example of, you know, my marketing isn't working, I don't know what I should be doing here. It should be, well, I don't know who I'm targeting or I, I don't know who to target. I don't know what message to, to put to them. Is, is that correct? That's exactly right. You define your problem in the beginning and start with one or two problems. Don't go nuts with it because you'll get a lot of answers from that. What you might find, and research is often called a rabbit hole, is that then your research not only gives you answers, but it gives you reason to conduct more research. A lot of people think, and I, I work in research, so obviously I, I like that, but that's not a bug, it's a feature. And it goes back to what we said, that why would someone conduct continuous research? Because it's a rabbit hole. I mean, you will never not benefit from learning more about your audience, their pain points, the market. So think of it as a continuous loop. And then, I mean, I know researchers, well, I know marketing teams is a better way to say it, who they just deploy a quarterly survey, always. And because this is part of their culture, creative teams will say, you know what, we have some copy that we want to test. I know the quarterly survey is coming up. Can we get our copy into it? Because now they think of research as an ongoing process. It's part of their culture. That testing becomes, again, a feature. It's part of the, the marketing thinking. And again, you don't have to guess. We're we're, we're literally going to run this idea we have through the research machine and it'll get a score at the end. And the score tells us whether or not we should pursue the idea further. Fantastic. I like that idea. If it's, if it's quarterly, it's a process that everybody can get involved with. And you can imagine, ah, this problem's come up. Can we put that into the survey coming up? Yeah. It's a vehicle. Useful. Yeah. Fantastic. Excellent. Second last question, just before we go, are there any big mistakes that you see people do when they try to do this themselves? <laughs> yes. So the first is paralysis by analysis. Everyone wants to do it and they think so, so hard that they don't do it. The number one advice I always tell people is to start. Just, just start doing research. Even if it's not the best research in the world, you will learn something. If you're a if you're not comfortable with a certain research methodology, even if it's the right methodology, go with what you're comfortable with. An example I give all the time, I, I work with a lot of public relations professionals. They're not usually data people. They like to talk to people. And so they say, I need to run a survey. I've never ran a survey. I'm intimidated by it. Of course you are. You're not a numbers person. And I'm not saying that's bad or good. But if you're comfortable talking to people, go conduct focus groups. It makes sense for your wheelhouse. 
Separately, if you're a digital analyst, meaning you live and breathe data, go conduct a survey if that's if you want to start conducting research, because the, your skills will lend themselves well to survey analysis. Even if you think I should be conducting a focus group, great, we'll get there. Right now, just start. Don't worry about the the, the paralysis by analysis part. It's it's just do it. The other thing, and this is this I see all the time. Research is more than just a report card. And I'll give you a, a, let me dive into what I mean by that. So I talked about the the survey at, on your receipt. And let's say you, you bought a cheeseburger and here's your receipt for the, sur- the and it has the survey code. 90% of the surveys I see say, okay, great. You bought our cheeseburger. How was it? One to five scale, meaning I'm looking for a letter grade. It's a report card. And the way I think about it, you get to ask your customers anything. You could ask them how they got there today, why they chose your restaurant over another one. What are they going to do after? Do they want to buy two burgers for the price of one and a half? I mean, you, you could ask anything. And most marketers are just thinking, okay, I want a letter grade. How do we do? It's a missed opportunity. It's You have the opportunity to learn anything. Get out of your own head and don't worry about the letter grade. Learn about the person. It's the same process and the latter is going to be much, much more beneficial to your business. Yeah, fantastic. I, now that you mention it, I... I can recall a couple of times when you do get questions like that and then you think, oh yeah what a waste there was probably a more important problem that they could be addressing with That's, the question someone told me recently and I, I need to start using this quote more because it blew my mind surveys are windows not mirrors mm. yeah and you, you think about that because again it, it goes back the mirror is the letter grade i don't i don't care about me. I care about you, customer. That's what a good marketer knows anyways. Research functions the same way. It's not about us. It's about them. I should have asked this earlier, but I need to slip this in just before we go. In terms of survey length, you mentioned people don't like to do things more than five minutes. Approximately how many questions should a person really aim for? Ah, It's such a hard question to answer. Five minutes is what you're going to get away with for free. And I, I actually take that back. It's about four and a half minutes. If I say I'm, uh, I, I'm not paying you for this survey, can you take it? I get a much higher response rate at four minutes than five minutes. And I always tell people up front how long, about how long the survey will take. When you're paying people, you can get away with 10 to 15 minutes. It depends on the exercise. But let me ask you this. What if I rebuilt a survey in Super Mario Brothers? And every time you hit a block, that's an answer. And now it's fun. Now it's, you know, 15 minutes goes by, which the user thinks it's 10 minutes because it was so much fun and they want to keep playing. Why would I limit them? I might want to keep going. Well, now it comes down to what, how engaging is your survey? How interesting is it? We didn't talk a lot about this, but this is, this is one of the reasons I joined uh, with Intuify this year is they built the most engaging survey platform I've ever seen. A few examples well, my, one of my favorite examples, we ask questions on surveys all the time, you know, on a, on, on a one to three scale, how much do you like or hate cheeseburgers? I use a lot of cheeseburger examples, by the way. <laughs> and we, you know, you picture bubbles where you, you answer the one bubble, the three bubble, et cetera, go down the line. Well, we replace that with swiping, like Tinder, because swiping is more intuitive and it actually releases a dopamine effect. We know this. This is, again, social science. So if the question is more fun and more engaging – and still yields the same data, people are more willing to take a longer survey or invest themselves deeper in a survey. Same thing, those open-ended questions I mentioned, you know, where you, you know, in your own words, tell me what you love about golf or cheeseburgers. 
we replace that with voice because voice is more human. So again, it goes back. There isn't really a hard, steadfast answer. It's the answer to your question is you can get away with the longest survey that keeps your audience engaged. The other thing to keep in mind is, especially if it's the surveys for your brand, meaning you're not hiding who you are. Think of that survey as an engagement piece. It's not just a uh, a clinical tool. It should be branded to you. It should look like you. It should have the same copywriting language as your ads and your brand. And if you do it right, you get away with a 10 or 20 minute survey as long as you've done it right. So again, it's a hard question to answer. It's you got to keep people engaged. How do you do that? And we, especially in the tech world, we know how to keep people engaged. We just got to remember that research is part of the same thinking. Mm, yeah, there's a there's a lot to it now that you mention it, you know, when when you look at a lot of survey software out there, it is as clinical as it can be, you know, black and white, gray, and it seems almost discouraged to use branding colors and try to make it interesting, but based on what you're saying, it actually might be better to go far the other way, brand it and make sure that it's as engaging as possible. Well, I know you've got a lot of digital folks on here too, and I'll I'll just tell you one of my favorite uses for research right now, or better yet, for surveys, most survey software has a lot of variability to it. Meaning if you say, pick your favorite food and you pick cheeseburgers from the options, we can programmatically display certain questions only about your cheeseburger experience. Well, that's programmatic branding. Separately, we can custom redirect based on your responses. I could take you to a blog article about cheeseburgers. Separately, I could take you to a blog article about chicken sandwiches if you chose chicken sandwiches. Well, what kind of power is that? That's custom redirects. That's content marketing 101, but you still get to collect data from it. And so if you think about a survey tool as an interactive brand experience that yields data, of course, brand it, put it in your colors, put it in your language, let your pr promote it, let your audience use it, engage with your brand, experience your brand, but you also get to collect data. So it serves multiple purposes. We're, we're at this point where research is an extension of marketing as much as it is informative to marketing. Yeah, embrace it. Yeah, it's a it's another one of those double whammies that uh, that we we mentioned earlier. For people who want to connect with you and learn more, where should they go? You could still find me at my old website, s2research.com. But right now, I definitely recommend people reaching out to me at Intuify. So that's I-N-T-U-I-F-Y.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Matt Seltzer. I've got a big beard. You can't miss me. And uh, seriously, anyone who wants to reach out, by all means, connect with me. The background image is also the creative catalyst. So you should be able to find it pretty easily. I'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes. Otherwise, Matt, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.